You're listening to the Diplomats Asia Geopolitics Podcast. I'm your host, Catherine Putz, coming to you from Washington, D.C. And this is Ankit Panda back in Washington, D.C. after a wonderful week in Singapore for the Shangri-La Dialogue, among other things. How, uh, how's your jet lag, Ankit? Um, it's, it's there, uh, but uh, hopefully listeners won't be able to pick up on too much of it. I literally just got back to Washington, uh, to a very smoky Washington, I might add, with uh, the uh, fires up in Canada. Uh, but Katie, I think uh, it'll be great to kind of debrief a bit and uh, talk about uh, what happened in Singapore over, over the weekend. Yeah, we definitely had to do this now uh, before everyone forgets about Shangri-La, but how could you? Uh, so, you know, I, I want to start with like the, the headline item, which uh, from my perspective has been sort of the U.S.-China dynamic. You know, both U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and Chinese Defense Minister General Li Shang-Fu spoke of the dialogue on different days. Uh, they did not meet with each other. Um, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm curious what you made of their remarks uh, as well as that sort of decision not for them to meet. Uh, I think the U.S. has been seeking that meeting and the Chinese have been sort of avoiding it. Uh, but but perhaps I'm wrong. Yeah, you know, I'll try to provide a bit of color on the podcast from uh, a participant. So I've been going to Shangri-La uh, for now, I guess, five consecutive rounds since 2017. And this was the 20th one overall. So I guess I've been to f- uh, a fourth of all, all Shangri-Las that have ever happened. And this was the first one that I've been to where the U.S., uh, and Chinese defense ministers didn't meet. Uh, and actually, a lot of the mm. buzz uh, before the dialogue began uh, was about the will-they-won't-they they dynamic leading up to this. Uh, there were various reports and uh, rumors suggesting that the Biden administration might uh, lift the personal sanctions on General Lee, which were the primary reason that China uh, apparently refused to meet with the United States. Although, you know, in the counterfactual scenario where those sanctions don't exist, it's also imaginable that China might still resist a meeting given just how bad U.S.-China relations have gotten. Uh, and so uh, by the first night, uh, we began to hear rumors that General Lee and Lloyd Austin would be seated at the same table at the opening dinner, um, which yep. was the dinner where Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese would give his keynote. Uh, and they were. Yeah. And, and you began to see these photographers kind of coalesce around that table as the two of them shook hands. And that was the big U.S.-China breakthrough at Shangri-La this year, uh, right? But, you know, I mean, on that note, um, obviously nobody was too impressed with a handshake. Uh, A handshake is not a dialogue, uh, and that's actually almost verbatim a line from Secretary Austin's speech. You know, he uh, he talked, uh, I think he said something about that, you know, handshakes are not enough like we need to have an actual conversation <laughs> uh, which which didn't get anywhere but you know now after shangri-la we're seeing reports that uh, secretary blinken is going to china uh, president biden uh, before shangri-la happened predicted that he was expecting a thaw in u.s china relations that thaw definitely did not happen at shangri-la uh, but instead i think we got what i think is likely to be a new normal going forward for many of these uh, international uh, forums but especially shangri-la where the forum is really going to turn into a platform for the U.S. and China to present their respective narratives and visions for Asia uh, to um, regional states. Uh, and I think that's what we saw this year. Um, so, you know, one of one of the things we published this week was from our colleague and fearless leader, Shannon Tiezi, uh, who, who wrote an analysis of Lee's speech. And one of the things that she uh, picked up on was that he made some concrete proposals, you know, uh, mentions of confidence building mechanisms, uh, dialogue, which which in, in her in- interpretation sound a lot like the quote unquote guardrails that Washington likes to talk a lot about. Yeah. But she also said that, you know, he sort of 
uh, buried these points um, under these sort of aggressive diatribes against the West, uh, against the United States, without necessarily naming the United States. Um, do you think that 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 there is space for that dialogue, or or when Lee says dialogue, does he mean something that the United States can't agree uh, on? Because uh, it seems it, it's interesting to to be saying almost the same things. Like, of course, we want to talk to the other side, uh, but not actually doing those things. Uh, what's what's the what's the issue? Yeah. No. So. So, you know, first thing is that this is General Lee's uh, first roadshow. It's his first international speech. It's, it's certainly his first time taking questions from an international audience. Uh, and the other thing is that uh, based on the session title, well, we all sort of knew that he'd be focusing on Xi Jinping's global security initiative, which China rolled out not too uh, not too long ago. Um, you're right, Katie. I mean, sort of sitting in that room and listening to General Lee's speech, uh, there was a long diatribe against the United States without naming the United States. And eventually he gets to a section on the United States where he begins naming Washington. Um, and there he he does offer a little bit of lip service to, uh, you know, the relationship between the two countries being uh, too important to completely ignore dialogue. Um, but then we get to the Q&A where he's asked about a near collision in the Taiwan Strait that happened the night before his speech, right? I think it tells you a little bit about the extent to which China might be coordinating from the top down all the way to the operational level, mm -hmm. because it seems like a really terrible thing to do right before uh, the Chinese defense minister is about to speak at Shangri-La. Um, but when it comes to that particular issue, which is from the U.S. perspective, the exact thing that... Um, demands a conversation on guardrails and demands a conversation on military communications, Lee, I think, gets to the core of his remarks. And a core, I think, that we've seen in previous speeches from his predecessor, General Wei Feng Ha, which is fundamentally that, yes, the U.S. and China can talk, but the U.S. has to recognize that it's not an Asian power, that it has no place in Asia, that it needs to back out mm -hmm. and, quote, mind its own business uh, in, in China's backyard. Uh, and that's a non-starter for Washington. So we end up, mm -hmm. you know, really back where we started on a lot of this. So the speech, uh, you know, was pretty standard fare, I thought, uh, depending on one's mood. People variously interpreted it as very hawkish or rather par for the course. I thought it was somewhere in the middle. Uh, he did come off, I think, as a little bit more hawkish than uh, General Wei did on uh, issues, uh, including, um, you know, just generally how he talked about the United States. Uh, he, he, you know, he did talk about Taiwan. He said nothing new on Taiwan. It was all, uh, it was all just familiar um, talking points that we've heard in the past. But, uh, you know, he, he made sure that he hit all of the major points. Again, he's got an audience of one back home with Xi Jinping as well. So he's got to make mm -hmm. sure that, uh, you know, he's doing, uh, he's doing the right thing. You know, just, just before I pass it back to you, Katie, I mean, one of the, one of the things with, uh, you know, that's important to recall about, um, General Lee is, you know, yes, he's on the Central Military Commission, but he's not um, Secretary Austin's counterpart uh, in the truest sense. The Chinese Minister of Defense is more of a military diplomat in the context of a meeting like Shangri-La, especially. He doesn't have um, oversight in the way that uh, the vice premier of the CMC, uh, General Zhang, uh, does in the Chinese system. Uh, and so that is something I think worth keeping in mind. Um, and this is something that's come up pre uh, recently for the United States, where uh, Secretary Austin has tried to reach out to his um, notional actual counterpart, not his counterpart in terms of protocol, right? Uh, General Lee does mm -hmm. have the Minister of Defense title, uh, but his role in the Chinese system uh, can't really be compared directly uh, to what uh, someone like Secretary Austin does in the United States. 
That is a great thing to point out. As always, the context matters. Uh, let's let's move on to the keynote speaker. So this year's keynote was Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. Um, you know, how would you sort of summarize the core message of his his keynote speech? And also, since you were there, how was it received uh, in the room? Yeah, so uh, the, I think the second part is pretty easy. Um, I, d I don't want to be rude to the Australian Prime Minister, but I think of every Chandra Love been to since 2017, this keynote was probably the one that left least of an impression on the rest of the dialogue uh, in that in that I heard I heard less about the speech than I did uh, about previous keynotes, like especially Prime Minister Kishida last year, who I think really made a big impression on the dialogue and uh, several speakers kept coming back to his his comments. I think, you know, I think a few ministers did mention uh, Prime Minister Albanese's speech and we had the Australian Deputy Prime Minister and Defense Minister there and, and several other senior Australian officials. Um, look, I think Albanese's speech uh, had three core themes, I would say, that stood out to me. Um, one being on the importance of the rules-based order for a country like Australia, uh, right? Unsurprising, Australia has been a big supporter of um, U.S. efforts to pursue a free and open Indo-Pacific to support a rules-based order regionally. So this was a prominent theme for Albanese. Um, Albanese also uh, talked about the role and agency of small states and middle powers, which uh, is a message that's particularly nice to tailor for a forum like Shangri-La, which... You know, as we basically haven't gotten to yet, right, the dialogue takes place in Singapore. Uh, and uh, there are many Southeast Asian countries in attendance. In fact, every member state of ASEAN, except for Myanmar, sent uh, official participation. Uh, this year, there were also small island states in Australia's neighborhood also participating. So for a forum that, as we've just demonstrated on this podcast, can often be subsumed into the uh, U.S.-China dynamic, uh, Albanese made an effort to point out that, uh, you know, Asia is home to these other countries that have uh, autonomy, have sovereignty, and have the decision to make their own choices about their defense. And that's where he gets to sort of the final point where he talks about what Australia is doing, right? Australia has had a uh, recently released defense strategic review. Uh, obviously, there's been AUKUS. Uh, you know, Albanese did not turn the speech into a defense of AUKUS, which he very well could have done given Australia's outreach to Southeast Asia on mm -hmm. that defense industrial partnership. Um, but in the end, you know, he, he did get to China and he talked about the concerns that a country like Australia has about the possibility of uh, conflict more generally in the region. Um, and, you know, he called on the U.S. and China to have uh, dialogues on on. Uh, uh, on strategic stability and uh, a military to military dialogue. So, you know, I think uh, the line that I think sums up what Albanese was trying to leave the room with was um, concerning Australia's own military modernization and capability development efforts, which was, and I quote, Australia's goal is not to prepare for war, but to prevent it through deterrence and reassurance and building resilience in the region, doing our part to fulfill the shared responsibility all of us have to preserve peace and security. So that was the case. Um, overall, uh, I don't think, you know, like I said, it left too much of an impression. But for a fairly new Australian prime minister uh, who's already overseen an important defense strategic review and has sustained the predecessor government's uh, AUKUS uh, arrangement, obviously, I think it was a pretty, um, a pretty fair uh, and, and fine uh, keynote overall. Okay, cool. Um, so, you know, I want to kind of, I, I yeah, I, I, I uh, not much to say on that, right? Yeah. No, I, I don't have much to add. But I but I, I do want to get to uh, the point that uh, Albanese made and you just made about 
small and medium states in the Asia Pacific and sort of, you know, I think there's a lot to be discussed, uh, possibly in other podcasts as well. But there's a lot to be discussed about the effects of the US-China great power competition on the states that uh, make up the most of, of Asia, these sort of middle middle powers. Um, you know, was there was, was there anything interesting that happened in in that topic area during the dialogue? You said that mo most well, most of ASEAN uh, had representatives there, uh, Pacific Island states. Um, was there was there attention paid to these states, or is it still uh, seemed a bit of a big power show? Um, so, you know, it it's interesting that you bring that up because uh, on Ukraine, uh, certainly uh, we had some interesting moments. Uh, right. And of course, you know, I wouldn't call, uh, you know, just to be clear, Indonesia is not a small state. It is it is certainly no. <laughs> a, a regional power. Uh, but the Indonesian defense minister uh, Prabowo made waves uh, and not in a good way uh, by presenting a peace plan for Ukraine that the Ukrainian defense minister then later described as uh, basically sounding to him like a Russian plan. Uh, you know, it frankly wasn't very serious. I think it mm. it, uh, it did not go over well with um, many of the Western delegations uh, supportive of Ukraine, who I think broadly interpreted it as part of um, part of a pattern of a lack of seriousness by um countries like Indonesia that have been non-aligned since the start of the war and have been unwilling to make sort of the tough calls that Western states would like them to make. Uh, but I should also mm -hmm. be clear here that, you know, Prabowo, uh, for listeners who don't follow Indonesia, uh, he's, he's a political actor. Uh, he has political aspirations. And the presentation of this Ukraine peace plan at this prominent international forum, I think, was a way for him to ensure that uh, he got some headlines as as a person that is sort of putting Indonesia on the map on on these issues. Uh, like I said, it didn't go over well, but uh, you know, Prabowo made no secret of this uh, effectively. Um, I thought you know just to kind of go over a couple other points. Um, we also uh, you know there was a pretty compelling speech on the implications of climate change for the region from the Fijian defense minister, uh, who basically made the point that, you know, countries like Fiji bear the brunt of this, but don't contribute anything to climate change. So how is that fair? And, you know, reminding the forum basically that non-traditional security threats like climate are a huge deal to uh, the region's mm -hmm. smaller island states. And and that was certainly, I think, welcome and, and well-received. Um, I really liked uh, a moment where um, Dr. Ung, Singapore's defense minister, uh, who always closes out the summit, uh, he has the final speech as the, as the host, uh, you know, he made a point that, you know, military spending is rising in Asia um, more broadly, and that doesn't necessarily need to lead to instability, but it is a sign that tensions are growing, there's a security dilemma at play, and he, and he called for a, uh, you know, an effort to... Um, pursue a strategic framework of engagement and mutual restraint uh, and that in absent that uh, you know we sort of tilt too far towards deterrence and the risk of conflict increases and that's a very kind of i think singaporean position obviously i mean it's coming from the singaporean defense minister but it does take me back to uh 2019 when uh, prime minister uh, lee sheng lung delivered a uh, i thought a pretty good keynote on how countries like singapore perceive the great power dynamics and how they often feel caught between and, and worry about the odds of conflict. And that was a theme that uh, we kept coming back to uh, with uh, with several of the other uh, ministers at the dialogue. 
I, I think that's probably a good place to leave it unless you have any other uh, closing thoughts or reflections on, on, you know, you've been going to these for five years. So, so maybe give us a little uh, view of what's maybe changed uh, or yeah. how your experience has changed. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, first of all, like the thing to say, and I'm not just saying this because uh, I'm, I'm sure friends and colleagues at the IISS will be listening to this episode, is that I, I genuinely think that in the current context in Asia, uh, a forum like Shangri-La really does matter, uh, right? There's, there's really nothing else like it in Asia at a moment when dialogue is ultimately necessary. Uh, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's a debate in the United States about uh, how much dialogue and engagement can really help in an environment where certain things that China in particular does appear to be deliberately designed to generate risk, like a near collision in the Taiwan Strait or uh, flying near U.S. reconnaissance aircraft, which, by the way, also happened uh, in the in the hours leading up to the dialogue. Um, but there really is nothing like it, and it's an opportunity to sort of hear from voices that otherwise um, sometimes are ignored by the major powers. You know, I thought it was particularly prominent that. The very first question Secretary Austin got was a question about China's nuclear weapons buildup, but didn't come from an American or, uh, you know, or even a Japanese participant. It came from a Philippines participant. Uh, and uh, the, the Q&A format is, is just a really unique way for uh, delegates to put some pretty uncomfortable questions to uh, regional defense ministers. So there's a lot of value. But, you know, two things on reflecting on the changes. Uh, thinking back to 2017, um, Look, I can I can sort of remember some of the themes that were on the agenda uh, in a big way that year. Uh, the Islamic State had taken over Marawi City. Uh, North Korea mm-hmm. was launching uh, missiles in in a way that certainly drew more oxygen than usual at the dialogue. Um, finally, it was the first year of the Trump administration, uh, and when it came to the U.S.-China agenda or China and regional security, the things we were talking about were maritime security whether the 2016 arbitral tribunal ruling in the South China Sea would would have legs uh, and on issues like FONOPS, right? It seems a little quaint in the in the current uh, context of a dialogue like Shangri-La. Uh, so a lot has changed. Uh, but going forward, you know, um, it is going to be, I think, limiting if Shangri-La does turn into a forum where, as you said at the outset, Katie, the American defense secretary speaks on the first morning and the Chinese uh, secretary, um, minister of defense speaks on the second morning and both sides simply present competing visions and narratives. Uh, I understand, of course, why the conference continues to be anchored around those two morning speeches. I mean, first of all, it gets everybody out of bed and in the rooms to watch <laughs> the two most anticipated um, ministers speak. Um, but given the, you know, given the location in Southeast Asia uh, and as Prime Minister Albanese said, the salience of uh, and the views of these medium and regional states. I, I think Shangri-La is real value going forward as U.S.-China competition continues to sort of ossify into what it's already become uh, and as relations continue to remain poor. Uh, I think it's going to be really important in what it gives these states to sort of make sure that their views and concerns and even recommendations for the United States and China uh, are actually heard. Um, that, you know, that said, uh, we will continue to see in all in all likelihood uh, U.S.-China competition continue to really take up a lot of oxygen in the room. Uh, yeah, so uh, you know, it's um, I think I think it's uh, an important forum, and uh, yeah, if I get to go back, I'll be I'll be happy to continue sort of tracking how these dynamics uh, play out over the years. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Ankit. Thank you very much, and to our listeners, if you haven't already, please leave us a review, recommend us to your friends, and get in touch with Ankit or I on Twitter via email. However. Uh, messenger pigeon, I guess, uh, with topics you'd like to hear us cover. Uh, have a great, have a great nap on it.
Thank you, Katie. Great, great <laughs> chatting and debriefing on Shangri-La while uh, my thoughts are still hot from the trip. So uh, talk to you soon. See ya.